You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. You are listening to episode three in the Ultimate House Hacking Guide for Denver. My name is Chris Lopez, and in this episode, myself and my co-host Joe Massey and Jeff White spend quite a bit of time talking about how to find properties and then what the best property types are uh, for house hacking here in Denver. It's not uncommon for people to go out there and from Bigger Pockets and other websites and podcasts on the internet say, I want to buy this type of property. Uh, but depending on where they're listening to it, that might be a different market or a different year. It may not be the best property type to buy here in Denver. So we go through different property types in Denver, how to find them and give you the pros and cons of what uh, what we're buying out there and actually break down of what our clients are buying as well. So it should be great information and all the maps and, inf- and information we reference, they are in chapter three of the book. And you can also uh, look in the show notes as well because they'll be in there as well. Enjoy the episode. So before we can start talking about what type of properties buy, we have to have the conversation of where do you find properties? Now, Joe, you and I talk about this quite often throughout the week as we're working together and doing transactions, is that we talk to a lot of people and they you know, read articles or hear investors and they want to go knock on doors or go find sellers who are selling the property for way below market value or go find a wholesaler. So. That, that there's definitely a segment of the investor market that's definitely a great fit for it, but is that the right fit for house hackers? So what you see on the screen right now is a graphic that Joe and I put together last year called the Deal Quadrant. Now we get an entire class on this, an entire podcast. So if you want that link, email me or search the website. Uh, but really briefly, there's four main ways you can find any type of property. One is the MLS. And that's the most common one that we see on RE Colorado, Zillow, Redfin, all the websites out there. One is through networking. And that's simply where, hey, if uh, Joe has a property and Joe's my friend, he says he's selling it and I buy it, great. I'm buying it through my network, through my relationship with Joe. The third way is through wholesaling. And wholesalers are, uh, they're not real estate agents typically, but they're people that go out there and source properties. Sometimes they find properties with the MLS. Sometimes they find properties from other sources. They get in their contract and they turn around to sell the contract to an investor. And the fourth way is by generating leads yourself. I'm sure we've all seen driving around town the We Buy Ugly Homes billboards or bandit signs on the side of the road or the ads on the internet. So a lot of times those are investors who are generating leads themselves and they are trying to find people that are in a distressed situation maybe a bankruptcy a few weeks away or they cash in a couple weeks. And these are people that have a tight timeline and they need to sell fast and they can come in there, look at a property and buy the property usually within, you know, three days, seven days at cash, but they get a significant discount. So Joe, when we talk with house hackers about here, where do you think most of the properties come from? Um, my favorite place to find properties is the exact same place where all the house hackers find properties. And that is the top left quadrant, the multiple listing service, the MLS. Yep. And this is something, cause we often get people, they want to go out there and they want to go out there and, uh, you know, uh, find their own off market deal or work with wholesalers. The reality is 
whether you're working with a wholesaler or generating your own leads, that's very hard to do as a house hacker. And here's why. So what is the timeline? A lot of times those transactions need to close in, you know, seven to 10 days is very common for those types of properties. Well, for a house hacker, that can often be problematic because of, you know, going through all your typical due diligence and then getting the financing in place and all these other items. Um, and also the fact that most house hackers are not experienced uh, investors. If you're buying your first transaction, heck, even if you're buying your fifth or sixth transaction, a lot of people are not comfortable being that quickly and that fast. And a lot of times those properties, they need to come in there and they need to uh, look at the property, uh, put a contract down and put their earnest money down within like two or three hours. Oh, by the way, your earnest money oftentimes is non-refundable. And then you have to buy the property within seven days. So things tend to move very, very fast. Now, since house hackers are not looking to buy the property to flip, they are rather looking to buy the property, live in it, and move it after a year, they don't need to get an amazing off-market deal because they already get the most powerful thing they can, they can get. It's a low down payment loan from Joe and the government or backed by the government. And that way, they get a high leverage loan, which is something that investors can't get. So you already get an amazing deal. So Joe, I know you do a lot of transactions for all types of you know homeowners, uh, investors, uh, very experienced people. How many of the house hacker clients you work with buy their houses through wholesalers or through their own leads they generate? Uh, house hacking clients, wholesales, and lead gen, zero lead gen, and I've had exactly one house hacker buy a transaction wholesale. And I'm not surprised by that because here are my stats. And so this is actually stats I pulled. Uh, looks like from February to February. So like 2019 to 2020. So the top half is rental properties. The bottom half, uh, we did 20 transactions over a 12 month period. 100% came from the MLS. And it's not because we don't, we don't see other properties. It's not because we're not looking. It's just because for the average house hacker, 99.9% .9 of people out there, the MLS is by far the very best way to go out there and buy their properties. Now, if you look at the rental section up here, you'll see that about two-thirds of the rental properties we bought were MLS, and about one-third was through networking. Again, that's because rental properties, a lot of times that's a very different type of property than it is for a house hacker looking to buy their properties. Now, Jeff, I know you're on house hack number three, and you've done quite a bit of real estate investing in the past. Where have all your house hacks come from? Straight from the top left, upper left quadrant, uh, MLS all the way. Yeah. Now, you, I know you've done, before you started house hacking, you did some out-of-state investing. Uh, you were doing some of your own lead sourcing. Like You were doing some more of the creative real estate transactions out there. So give us like your, your quick background on that and why you're focusing on buying your house hacks through the MLS versus doing some creative deal sourcing. Yes, uh, I mean even going back to the 2008-2010 timeframe, I did a little wholesaling and short sales back then, um, and it was a challenge. And we did uh, banded signs, but it was even back then when there was an abundance, it was a complete uh, buyer's market, complete opposite of today. It was still a challenge to even find people that um, you know deals that you could really close. Um, and almost none of them, they were all like like a week away from foreclosure or like two weeks. So they weren't even realistic to purchase like a buy and hold for a traditional, invest, uh, traditional buyer. 
Um, and then, yeah, wholesaling, I have done different... Uh, like Through that, I did get a few wholesale deals. And same thing, how fast they want to close. They Usually, these properties are in such disrepair that you can't get normal financing from them. So it was just not realistic, um, at least um, doing those more non-traditional paths of trying to find your own deal. Um, not saying it's impossible. It just um, takes a pretty much a unique person that has great marketing skills and also can really make it a full-time job because you can't just do it as much as those infomercials tell you. You can do it part-time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even close to that. You really... You pretty much have to meet someone. Like you pretty much have to be able to answer your phone because they're calling ten other wholesalers probably um, right then and there, and probably go meet that person within like the hour of that phone call or less. Um, and that's just not realistic for most W two employees or, or the uh, traditional person that wants to buy a house hack. So you said something uh, a great point there, Jeff, and this amount, Joe, you'd elaborate on there. Because you mentioned that a lot of these properties are not in condition, a good enough condition where you get permit financing on there, Joe. So if I'm coming in there to buy, you know, a five percent down conventional house act property, why can't I just buy any property out there? Like, what has to be, what conditions the property need to be in so I can buy it and live in it? Yeah, the property needs to be in average condition or better. It needs to be safe, sound, and habitable. It's my least favorite word in the English language. Habitable. I can never spit it out. So um, the way I describe it is if you can go into the home and set down a two-year-old toddler in the middle of the floor and that child can run around and be reasonably safe, you're probably okay. You can probably get conventional or FHA financing on it. If I go into the middle of the house and I set down a two-year-old toddler and he's going to run to the back of the house and there's a window kicked in and there's glass all over the floor and he can pick that up and get hurt, that's a problem. If the carpet is missing and there's tack strips all around the side of the house uh, that he could step on and get injured, that's a problem. Um, if the light switch covers have all been removed and the, the uh, outlet covers have all been removed and there's exposed wiring and he could stick his hand in there and get shocked, that would be a problem. Um, so a lot of uh, wholesale transactions, a lot of transactions that we get through networking um, might be in worse shape. They're damaged, they're foreclosures, they're... Uh, distress sales. They are my favorite, a fix and flop, right? So somebody that was doing a fix and flip ran out of money, couldn't finish it. And so the house is halfway done. For conventional financing, that property needs to be, again, habitable right out of the gates, ready to go. Um, if it is not, we would need, would need to look at some other alternative financing, like a hard money loan uh, or maybe some sort of private money financing. Yeah. And so in my time as an agent, we I've done one deal with a house hacker and these were, you know, uh, experienced investors. They'd done a few flips on a few rentals, and they were moving on to their second or third house hack. And they wanted, they had some, you know, uh, really cool plans of doing, a, you know, a live-in fix and doing some major value add to the house. And so they got, you know, a, a great location around Denver, and uh, found the properties exactly what you said, Joe. It was a fix and flop. Uh, and I don't know what happened with the partnership on there, but the property. You know, had been on the market for six months. The flipping had, st- had stopped like six months before then, so it was under. You know, uh, it was underpriced, uh, but needed a lot of work, and so they wanted to live in it. But here was the thing: as Joe said, it was not habitable. There was 
no kitchen appliances. Well, if there's no stove, if there's no kitchen sink, they can't live there. The water had been turned or water and sewer had been turned off. So they actually could not go in there and live. And so even they were planning on living in there, well, they had to go in there. And first, they went the route of having a construction loan by the place with a plan of getting it in livable condition and then in two or three months refinancing it into a, a, uh, you know, a conventional loan. So a lot more moving pieces there. And I can tell you, uh, construction loans are not nearly as favorable financing as a 5% down conventional loan. So we can spend here all day and talk about um, why it doesn't make sense, but just listen to stats. Of all the house hacking transactions I've done, not just the last 20 out of the last year, 100% is from the MLS. All of Jeff's house hacks he's purchased has been the MLS. Joe's, all the transactions he's done, except for one, has been from the MLS. And just for clarity, Joe does a lot of mortgages, a lot of loans, has been around for a long time doing it. So I'm assuming he's probably like a 99 point something percent house hackers on the MLS. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, the one I did, that is just a one off. Yep. That should, your stats here are perfect. So I just want to emphasize that because we want to give you the reality check here. And I see a lot of people, they want to go find this off market property. Great. That's probably not going to work out for you in the house act. There's always that one in a million chance, but we like to actually go for very good odds. So all of our stats points to the MLS, and we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> all right, so let's talk about property types now. Because if you go Google house hacking, you know the every blog article I've seen talks about going out there and buying a duplex or fourplex or a triplex, you know, buying a multifamily unit. And really in terms of house hacking, we're looking at anything that's four units and less. Because once it's five units or more, it's no longer a residential loan. So if you want a loan for five units, Joe can help you out because he's not a commercial lender. So for residential financing, we look at everything from four units and less. So here's the thing. like It makes sense on the concept, on the conceptual level, and looks good on paper, that, hey, go out there, buy a duplex, and then live on one side, and you run out the other side. Or go out there and buy a fourplex, and live in one unit, and run out the other three. The problem here is you have to look at what's going on in the market. And guys, how would you describe the inventory of multifamily in Denver right now, the inventory and quality of it. Very low, very, very low. Um, and the quality is not great. Um, if you if you do find a, a property that's available, it's probably overpriced and it probably is in not the best condition. Yeah, I agree with Joe's sentiments, uh, low and low, basically. <laughs> uh, you're not going to like if, if, if you find that unicorn, that's like the fixed up multifamily, um, you're going to pay the premium to buy that fixed up multifamily. But if you're just talking about the run of the mill multifamily property, it's going to be probably a rental its whole life's lifetime. And as with most rentals, the owners probably haven't fixed it up like a normal homeowner would compared to like a house hack. Um, so it's going to have at best rental quality finishes and updates and probably a ton of deferred maintenance as well. For that, That's what I've experienced. So I went and pulled some stats here on the inventory of multifamily. And so I went on the MLS and said, how many duplexes are there that are under $736,000? There's 19 of them. How many triplexes are there under $889,000? There's seven. And how many fourplexes are under $1.1 million? There's 11. Now, Joe, why did I pick those price points? 
Uh, those would be the price ranges that you can purchase with an FHA uh, loan with your minimum three and a half percent down. Yeah. And so, because when you always look at properties, you always have to make sure, hey, can I get financing on this property? And there are more duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes all over those price points. But Joe can't give you an FHA loan on those because they're over the guidelines about what those loans can do. So right there, that is 19 plus 11. So that's 37 properties of inventory and multifamily around Denver. And Joe, why don't you talk on the financing options here with multifamily? Yeah. So you could do that with an FHA loan, you know, with three and a half percent down on any of these. Uh, USDA would not work because we are talking about here in Denver and you can't use USDA uh, in the Denver metro area, number one. And number two, you can't use USDA on multi-units. Um, but then VA would work on these as well with minimum down payment. Um, but conventional loans, your duplex, you're going to need a minimum of 15% down. Your triplex and fourplex, you're going to need a minimum of 25% down. So 25% of $1.1 million, what's that, $275,000? Yep. Um, not really a great plan in my mind for using conventional financing if you're trying to house hack. Yeah, I mean, if you're putting down a quarter million dollars... Don't live in the place. Just buy as a rental. Right. Um, and the other thing on here is, great. You can use the FHA to go buy your first property, which is what Jeff did with his fourplex a few years ago. But can I use that FHA on my second and third multifamily, Joe? Generally not. Not unless you're moving a long distance away because uh, FHA is really not designed to help you build up a rental portfolio. So once you've got two or three or four properties and you want to use FHA to buy another property... Um, we're going to submit that over to FHA and they're going to say, no, nah, you're looking at building a rental portfolio, um, trying to buy another multi-unit. That's not going to work here. You're going to have to do conventional. So you'll need to do that 15 or 25% down. So that's, that's why it's important to use FHA that very first time out of the gate. And going back to one of the earlier modules we talked about was, you know, the real power in house hacking, it's not buying one property, but it's buying multiple properties to the nomad strategy. So Great. Do you need to buy multifamily in your first property? No, you don't. If you can, great, but don't get fixated on there because the power of it comes in buying your second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth property. And I don't care how good your first multifamily property is, I'd rather take six rental properties and I'll come out way farther ahead than that person with the Grand Slam uh, multifamily house hack. So some other considerations to, to think about here um, with these properties is that if you're using an FHA loan to buy these properties, they have higher appraisal standards. And this is important to keep in mind because Joe gave the analogy earlier about putting you know, a toddler down in the middle of a room and how safe can they be? Well, FHA has higher appraisal standards, sell safe, safety and health standards than conventional loans do. So if I'm selling a fourplex and then Jeff wants to come in and do a house act, and Joe's coming in and putting $250,000 down with a conventional loan to buy it, you know, and both their loans are equal, I'm probably going to go with Joe's loan. Here's why. Because Joe's investor, he cares a lot less about the property than Jeff does because Jeff, Jeff's going to live there. Jeff's going to be pickier. Oh, this is Jeff's first property? Oh, Joe, you've got nine properties? Cool, you know what you're doing. Um, plus, the appraisal standards that Joe will be held to through his lender is going to be a lot lower than Jeff's. And the FHA appraisal standards, I mean, they get nitpicky. Oh, there's no handrail. There's chipping paint. We can't lend to you. And oh my gosh, have you guys ever seen chipping paint in a multifamily around Denver? All the freaking time. Like every so, one of them? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so they had just have a lot of, you know, a lot higher standards to go to. And so put yourself in the shoes of what the seller is going to do. And since we are in low inventory in a seller's market, a lot of properties get multiple offers. Well, they're going to usually go with the uh, least headache, most likely to close transaction. And that's usually an investor versus a house hacker. The other thing, you know, there's that guideline that you have to move, move into the property within 60 days. <clears throat> well, what do a lot of fourplexes have in there? They have tenants. So if you're in there or if you're buying the property and all four units are leased up, well, one of those units, need to, their lease needs to be ending within 60 days so you can move in or it needs to be a vacant property. So keep those two things in mind out there. So we only have 37 properties on the MLS right now that are multi that are multifamily. So I guarantee you, a lot of them don't have a tenant that is or a unit that is vacant or a tenant that's moving out in 60 days. And a lot of them won't meet the appraisal standards. Now I have no data on there, but I would say that probably wipes out about at least 50% of the properties on there. Joe, do you have any like other numbers to pull out of the thin air like I did on that? Uh, I, mean, I don't have any data on it, but I mean, the appraisal standards are going to be big. The must move in within 60 days. That's big because a lot of fourplexes and, and multi-units, they're fully occupied. Um, I've done several appraisals recently on people refinancing their multi-units and they're all fully occupied, right? And vacancy right now is less than 2% for uh, four units and under. So very low odds that you're going to find one that's vacant that you can buy and move into within 60 days. And then the high competition from investors, that's why you're seeing the prices so skewed. Um, so let's think about this for a second. Let's look at a duplex, $736,000. That's a two-unit property. All right. So two units, 736 divided by two, that's what? $368,000. That's really, really high for an investment property, $368,000 per unit. But that's what investors are paying for them right now because they do get some economies of scale of one roof, one mechanical system, et cetera. But that's a really high dollar amount to be spending for one unit um, or on a per unit basis. So you're seeing high competition from investors that's driving up the prices and making it not as appealing for house hackers. So you can do it, yes, but it might not be your most uh, financially advantageous way. And so the last bullet point on this topic is that out of those last 20 transactions we did, two were multifamilies, two were duplexes. And so that's 10% of, the, of our house act transactions have been uh, duplexes. And over my entire career, it's definitely less than 10% of all the transactions we've done. So 10% is higher than the uh, you know, long-term average, but 10% is the recent average. So I'm not saying it's impossible to go out there to buy a duplex or a fourplex or that you should not look. What we're saying here is don't get hyper-focused tunnel vision on there because I've met a lot of uh, potential clients that say, hey, I'm only going to buy a du- I'm only gonna house, I'm going to buy a duplex. Well, then a year later, they still bought a duplex. Well, if they'd gone there and just bought another property, they'd be better off because any property for a year or any property that makes sense for a year is better than no property. So is it a possibility? Yes, but don't. Re- but realize that's not the only thing to go out there and buy for your house hack. All right, guys, you got any uh, final thoughts before we move on? No. No, that's good. Uh, so houses, and I put in parentheses detached because this is, uh, you know, to be very clear, these are your detached houses. These are houses that you typically see, you know, there's no shared walls. They're in the suburbs or, you know, they've got their four, four uh, walls and a roof. 
no other properties attached to it. So that's what we commonly call a house. So the inventory here is really high. Um, I say relatively high for the properties in the current Denver market. So I ran a search um, recently. And so I ran a search for houses that are have four bedrooms or more and two bathrooms or more that are $400,000 or less. There are 276 properties on the market. So 276 versus 37. Which one has greater inventory? <laughs> I'd it's say this houses. One. Probably houses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this is an important thing to keep in mind. It's like, great, I want to buy this, but what's the market offering me? Well, right now, the, mar- the market's offering you a lot of houses right now, relatively speaking. And typically what we're seeing here when we buy house acts, or I'm sorry, houses for house acts, anywhere from the low 300s to high 400s, with most of them coming right around, you know, 400 plus or minus about 30,000. So, you know, high 300s, low 400s is the most common, uh, but from the extremes are low 300s to high 400s. So in financing, talk to us about this, Joe. Yeah. You know, the nice thing about financing, you can do... FHA, VA, uh, USDA, if you're buying out in a rural area, you can do conventional. Um, you can do 5% down um, on conventional. You don't have to do that 15 or 25% down like you do on a multi-unit. So works great to buy a home for the very first house hack. Works great to buy a home for your second, third, fourth, fifth house hack. Um, and Jeff, let me put you on the spot. I believe you did a multifamily for your first one. And then since that, it's all been single family homes using conventional financing, right? Yep, yep, the five percent down conventional that exact yep. loan program. Yeah, and it goes off without a hitch. You know, like we looked at yesterday, you can buy down the rate, you can pay down uh, the mortgage insurance. Um, lots of options uh, for financing on detached homes. Uh, so, frankly, houses usually make the most sense in the current market. Now, if you're listening to this in 2022, it might have changed. But right now, for this year and the remainder of the year, I don't see this changing a whole lot. And we say it makes the most sense for the number of reasons of we have higher inventory, we have a lot more loan options available, and the competition, you have a different type of competition. They're not investors, but they're other uh, people that want to buy property. So you don't have to deal with having to move it, having tenants in there and moving off in 60 days. You're dealing with a lot less health and safety appraisal issues. So there's a lot more odds in your favor of finding a house for your house act. So out of the last 20 transactions, 70% of our house acts have been single-family homes. All right, the last category of properties we can talk about are condos and townhomes, also known as attached properties because they are attached to other units. So I would put the inventory at medium, and I say this because uh, there's, you know, for condos and townhomes to be an affordable price point, uh, there's usually two types of them. There's the rental grade uh, condos and townhomes, and then there's the, hey, these are nicer uh, townhomes and condos where I want to live for a year or two. And I mean, Joe and I, we buy a lot of rental condos. We sell all of them to our clients. Um, I have yet to have anyone that's on the house act the best condos we see out there for an investment property. And just to put it very bluntly, those are great rental properties. But going back to that balance of balancing your personal needs and wants, they usually don't check off the categories in your personal needs and wants. So I'd put inventory around medium. And typically what we're buying on these are three bedrooms and two baths. Because if you're doing like a one bedroom or one bath or two bedroom or two bath, a lot of times numbers are a lot harder to work. Uh, either while you're living there, 
Because if you buy a three bedroom or two bathroom condo or townhouse, um, you can use, if you rent out two of the bedrooms, you can usually pay for your mortgage and then a little bit. Like we've got one client, they just closed on a townhouse in Westminster two months ago. Uh, and they're getting like eight fifty uh, each for two bedrooms. Well, he's bringing like seventeen hundred dollars a month in rent. That covers his mortgage. Uh, now, if you did with a two bedroom and you're not one bedroom, you're only bringing eight hundred dollars a month. So the price point of a three bedroom over a one or two bedroom is usually not that much greater. So it makes more sense for while you're living there if you're renting out room by room. And then when you move out, they typically cash flow better as well. So typically, our three bedroom, two bathrooms. And those that we're seeing, again, this is the type of properties we're buying for house acts, not the cheapest properties out there. We're buying things from about the mid 200s to low 300s is a price range we're buying for condos and townhomes in the current Denver market. So Joe, what about financing on these? Um, you know, real similar to single family that you can use FHA, VA, you, uh, you cannot use USDA, excuse me. Um, but there's some unique things with condos that the complex does need to be on the FHA approved list. And many condos are not FHA approved simply because the homeowners association has not sent in the paperwork or for other uh, weaknesses in the homeowners association. Um, So not every complex is FHA approved. However, townhomes um, are treated just like a single family residence. So townhomes are of course, FHA approved just like a single family. But again, you can use 5% down for conventional um, and then there, all, there are also some 3% down conventional plans if you're a first-time home buyer. Um, and so if you're buying with uh, you know, minimum down payment um, or maybe even down payment assistance um, can work really well on a condo or townhome if it's your very first property. And so just some other things to keep in mind as we talk about these is keep your eye on HOA fees and the health of the HOA. So you'll see HOA fees go anywhere from about, you know, about $200 to, I'm asking as high as $600 for condos and townhomes. And so there's a big, big spread there. And so typically what we're buying for house tax and rental properties, 300 to 350 a month is about the highest we'll go towards an HOA. Cause once it gets above that 300, 350 mark, the numbers just stop making sense. It really hurts usually the cash for the property. Or there's places where they're, you know, super high in amenities and those just don't make great rental properties. And Joe, what's the correlation? Because I get this question, I'm not great at answering, but what's the correlation of I'm buying a lower price condo by an HOA fee? Does it impact uh, my buying power from a lending lending standpoint? Yeah, yeah. So it varies a little bit, but if you're buying, let's compare a condo to a single family home, we've got to factor in the HOA dues on that condo as part of your monthly payment. So let's just say the HOA dues are $250 a month. That is gonna be approximately $50,000 less in value that you can pay for that property as compared to a single family home uh, with no homeowners association. Um, So think about that. If I'm buying a single family home, I can afford a $2,000 a month payment. Uh, Maybe that's a $400,000 home. If I'm buying a condo and it's got a $250 HOA, well, that's got to fit into my $2,000 a month payment. I can only afford to buy a $350,000 condo. And again, that's not precise math because it varies based on interest rate, taxes, insurance, et cetera. But that's kind of a good rule of thumb. For every $250,000, it's about 50... Uh, I'm sorry, for every $250 in HOA, it's about $50,000 less in the purchase price. 
And that's a great explanation. So, so thank you. And talk about the HOA health. Cause I know you look at HOAs a lot more than I do when it comes to underwriting because you guys are lending on them. Yeah. So we review HOAs extensively on every condo transaction um, because it's now a third party that can impact the value of the home, right? Um, are they keeping up with the maintenance? Are they reserving appropriate funds for future maintenance? Are they, do they have appropriate insurance? And so sometimes you might find a complex, you're like, man, the HOA dues are only $110 over here. And we'll do a little research and we'll say, yeah, you know why? Um, because they're not paying the management company and they're behind on their bills. And, uh, they are not saving any money for maintenance. And the insurance is really bare bones insurance and insures the property to a very, very low level. And so that might be a, a real concern. And then you, on the flip side, you might see, hey, we've got a homeowner's association that the dues are $600 a month. And we'll research that and we'll say, you know, it's $600 a month and they've got 25% delinquency. 25% of their homeowners are behind on their HOA dues. And so they've had to raise it on everyone else in order to keep up with the maintenance. Well, that's a problem because that is a uh, leading indicator for foreclosures. So we're going to go through the condo documents in depth to make sure that we're comfortable not only with the borrower and not only with the house or the condo, but now we've got to look at that homeowner's association to make sure that we're comfortable with that third party that could impact the value of the property. So when you guys are out there, if you go out there and buy a condo or townhouse, you don't need to go out there and research the HOA yourself before you put an offer in. Joe and his team will do their due diligence. And then once we're in our contract as well during the due diligence phase, we'll also review the HOA docs from our perspective, which is reviewing the docs. And we usually look for to make sure that, hey, does the property or does the complex have any rules against not having uh, units in there as a rental property? And so very few in Denver uh, don't allow that. But I lived in other states, such as Florida, and a lot of HOAs in Florida don't allow owners to rent out their properties. So great, if you plan on buying this property, and then one year later you want to move out, but you can't rent it, well, that might be a problem for building a rental portfolio. So a couple of things to keep in mind on there. And my last question, I both of you guys, because you know we often get a, a very mixed reaction when we talk about HOAs. And it's not common for people to think that HOAs are just the devil and I would never own a property in the HOA because they're going to ruin my rental portfolio. Joe, would you buy a property with an HOA? Yes. Jeff, would you? Absolutely. I would too. I have no problems with them. Um, of course, as Joe said, you're giving up some control there. But it's not black and white that they're evil or they're going to ruin things. A lot of people made a lot of money by buying properties of HOAs. Every property I own, Chris, uh, has a homeowners association. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I knew you had a lot, and it was all of them. What's that? I said I I knew you had a lot, but I didn't know it was all of them. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Every isn't property it you? If I recall correctly, because I know in your primary residence you have an HOA that uh, an investor bought a place. And then realized after closing, they couldn't rent it out. Yeah, that was the house that I bought, actually. He bought it to uh, rent it out and uh, wasn't able to rent it. Didn't read his homeowners association documents and, uh, you know, put a sign up in the window, said for rent, posted on Craigslist. It wasn't 15 minutes that the HOA was all over him. Hey, you can't rent that here. We don't permit rentals in our homeowners association. And he's like, well, I just bought this as an investment. They're like, well, we don't really care. You can let it sit vacant. Or you can sell it, but you're not renting it out. Um, and he had signed the the agreement to follow all the HOA rules, so he didn't have an opportunity to rent it. 
he put it back on the market and my wife and I ended up buying it about 10 years ago. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So do due diligence on that. Like I said, there's not many complexes we've seen that don't have those rules, but it's always good to make sure um, and read about those rules. Now, if you're looking to do a short-term rental, such as an Airbnb while you live in there, a lot of HOAs do not allow for it. But again, that's something else you need to figure out what does the HOA allow for and what doesn't allow for and make sure it works, it fits with your investing goals. Uh, so out of the last 20 transactions we've done, 20% of our house acts have been condos or townhomes. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is a good topic. I forgot we had the slide in here. Accessory dwelling units, also known as ADUs. So these are, um, they go by a lot of names, carriage houses, granny flats, uh, other names I can't think mother of. Mother-in-law suite. Exactly, mother-in-law suite. So these are houses where you get your house, and then a lot of times they'll be out back uh, where the garage is or above the garage. It'll be like a, a one-bedroom uh, you know, tiny house or a one-bedroom apartment above a garage. So these are units that are uh, you know, next to the a single-family home. So they've become really popular the last couple of years. A lot of people talk about them. And I actually did a really in-depth uh, nine-part ser- podcast series on them about two years ago and came to the conclusion that, yeah, they sound great, but they often don't work that well when it comes to house hacking. So there's two ways to look at this. There's the purchasing properties with house hacks. Or I'm sorry, there's purchasing houses with ADUs. And then there's uh, buying a property and then building the ADU yourself. So let's talk about purchasing. So purchasing, the main problem here is that there's not a whole lot of properties with ADUs, but the difficult thing is actually sourcing them. There's no good way in the MLS to actually source ADUs out there to find them. A lot of agents actually don't even mention them in listing uh, descriptions. So it's very hard to source them. Now, from the financing standpoint, Joe, do ADUs have any impacts on financing? No, we treat it just like a single family residence. Yeah. So that's the great thing is you can go out there and you can buy it for FHA or buy your second, third, fourth property at 5% down. So if you can find them, great, do it. So to date so far in my real estate career, Joe, how many houses with ADUs have I sold to house hackers? Oh man. Two or three, not very many. Zero. Zero. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, zero. And that's just because, not because we haven't looked, not because we don't want them. It's just because they're really hard to find. Um, And I say that just kind of give you guys a reality check. Like, hey, I wish I could sell a lot more, but we just don't see a whole lot of them. Now, here's There's not a lot of them out there, and they're expensive. Yeah, Yeah, talk about that, because I know you do loans on them. You you see more than I do. Yeah. Yeah, I've done done a number of these, um, but they're expensive. And, you know, you might have a single-family home that is... $300,000. $300,000. And then right next door, you've got a single family home with an accessory dwelling unit going for $400,000, right? It's probably not worth $100,000, but with that implied rental income or somebody can get it and do Airbnb, they'll pay a premium for it. Um, and so it kind of goes back to the multi-units that we were looking at that some people will really um, pay a high premium for these accessory dwelling units. Um, the other thing too, based on some zoning codes, um, they're not always in the most desirable areas. Sometimes they are, um, but sometimes they're in what you might describe as a little more rugged of an area. Um, and so you might be paying a premium for a property and you don't really want to live there. So let's go to the other side of the coin, uh, which is going out there and building ADUs. I have this conversation 
almost on a weekly basis with people that want to house hack or invest and go out there, buy a house and build an ADU. So last year, uh, Denver County did pass a big uh, zoning update or rules to update the zoning to allow a lot more uh, places to have ADUs. So the problem here is, is the expense in building ADUs. So I often ask people, hey, great, how much do you think it costs to build an ADU? And they're like, oh, you know, like 15 grand, 20 grand. Nope. Add a zero to that. Yeah, it's like 200. Yeah. I mean, they are insanely, I mean, you're literally building a house. It's just tiny. So you still have a very high, uh, you know, cost to build. So it becomes out to be the lowest I've seen. I've actually heard people say is $150,000 and usually comes out to what you said, Joe, $200,000. So it's a large chunk of money. Now, Joe, let me ask you a financing question. So if I go out there and I buy a $400,000 house in Southwest Denver, uh, and it's zoned allowed ADU, I put 5% down. Oh, now I want to build an ADU out back. I, I get a cheap one for $150,000. What type of loan can you give me? Uh, I'll give you a regular conventional with 5% down, and then you can pay for your ADU out of pocket. Wait, out of pocket? Yep. Yeah. So this is one of the problems is it comes in the financing. So you can't do a low down option to go build one. So you can, what most people do, and these are people have lived in parts of Denver for a long time. Well, they've got equity in the property. So they do a HELOC or a cash out refinance their property to fund uh, building their AD or they take out a construction loan. But even a construction loan, you're going to put down 30 or 35%. And then an ADU takes a year to build. Um, and it, you know, it always takes longer, always have cost overruns. And every single person who's built an ADU, they have shared that point numerous times with me to put it very politely. It takes a long time to build it. And so the economics just don't make sense because it's a really hard time to finance. And then appraisers have a hard time for it. So even if I have $200,000, so Joe, if I buy a house for $1,000, I spend $200,000 because my parents give me a loan to go build it. Will it will appraise for $600,000 then? No, the highest adjustment I've ever seen, and I see a lot of appraisals, the highest adjustment I've ever seen for an ADU is $50,000. More commonly, they're thirty to 35000 positive adjustment on the appraisal. So you're going to be best case getting a four times expensive, more expensive unit, you know, $200,000 expense for $50,000 of value benefit. Yeah. And so that, that becomes their problems. Like, well, great. If you do that, well, now I can't refinance into a better loan. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this is look at the numbers. If I got $200,000 to go out there and, you know, build an ADU and use those ADUs, they'll maybe bring in, you know, $1,500 a month in the long-term rent. Maybe you know twenty five hundred dollars a month by Airbnb it, or I can take two hundred thousand dollars and go buy four condos or go buy a fourplex. Well, those are going to be a lot more cash flow than twelve hundred dollars a month. Those will give me six thousand, seven thousand dollars a month in cash flow. So if you go back to looking at how to best utilize capital, it's usually not going to ADU. It's using that money to go out there and buy an existing rental by putting a twenty percent or twenty five percent down payment and leveraging up. Chris, we've got one question here. Um, can you put a tiny house in back? Uh, I don't know. I've had people ask me that question. Um, and you have to go talk to your, you know, whatever county you're in a municipality, go talk to them and see what they say. Yeah, I can help with that too. A tiny house is just simply a trailer. It's not a permanent structure. Um, and so, yeah, as long as it, uh, the county permits for you to park a, uh, trailer on your unit, 
and for you to connect it up to sewer and water. Um, if the county zoning and the county guidelines permit that, then yes, you could certainly do that because um, it's, it's basically just like parking a camper. But if the county guidelines don't permit that, then no, you wouldn't be able to do that. All right, so let's see here. Okay, so ending this session up here, what's the best property for you? It depends. And Jeff, why don't you talk about this? Because you've done quite a few transactions. You bought a fourplex. You bought a couple of houses now. What's the best property for the house hacker out there? Uh, I guess that's uh, it depends answer. Um, <laughs> they have to look at their really deep dive into their situation. Um, are they single? Are they married? Are they in a relationship? They have kids, no kids. Do they have, um, you know, do they travel a lot for their jobs? I mean, you get a lot of different variables to think about. And that's once they understand, okay. Um, oh, and then also what type of property they like, you know, if they're coming from, you know, a nice apartment that is, you know, type of class A, all the bells and whistles and like a Zen dog park up there, they're probably not <laughs> going to want to go to a, a duplex. Um, so just being realistic, like honest with themselves to say, okay, what's uh you know, we don't want multifamily. So the next best option is, you know, potentially a condo townhouse or a detached house. Um, and then going from there and then starting. And then before they even talk to Chris, they need to talk to Joe and understand their financial, financial situation, what they can qualify for. Um, and then go from there. And then Chris can help find those and locate those properties that they desire. Um, based on the criteria of how much they can qualify for, and then pick out the winner from there. Well said. Yep. <laughs> I mean, on. you nailed it. Um, so to wrap things up here, uh, let us know how we can help. Uh, again, you know, my name is Chris Lopez. I'm an agent. I help people buy house hackers. Joe is a lender at Castle and Cook. He helps you get the financing in place. And Jeff is an active house hacker, also a house hacking coach. And he does some consulting and help people go out there and figure out how to best run their house hack, live with their tenants, get the uh, self-manage the properties, all those nuances. Because house hacking, a lot of times like a square peg in a round hole, and Jeff helps you navigate those waters. So if you need us, go to denverinvestmentrealestate.com slash hhhelp, and all our contact details are there. So thank you for listening. Joe and Jeff, thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you have any questions or need clarification, shoot me an email. Or if you want to grab a physical book copy of the Ultimate House Hacking Guide, also send me an email. My email is chris at denverinvestmentrealestate.com. A couple other services that we offer, if you need help putting together your investment plan and buying your first or your next house hacking property, reach out to me. That's what we specialize in. If you need help with lending and financing, reach out to Joe Massey. That's his specialty. And if you need help in stabilizing and operating your house act property, reach out to Jeff White, as that's his specialty. Now, all their contact details are in the show notes. If you have trouble finding them or you just want to keep it simple, shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer all your questions and also connect you with Joe, Jeff, or whoever you need to talk to. All right. We'll see you next episode.